My name is Jonathan Martin, and you are listening to the Zeitcast. So I feel like this little episode needs a lot of context. I want you to know that it is March 17th, 2023, the year of our Lord. I want you to know that it's 5.09 a.m. at the exact moment when I hit record. I've not been to bed. I've not been to sleep. Why might you ask? Well, this is release day for the new U2 record. Okay, the pseudo new U2 record. Songs of Surrender, 40 U2 tracks revisited, reimagined, stripped down to their essence. That hit at midnight. In addition to this, the Bono and Edge in Dublin with David Letterman special released a couple hours ago. So my best friend, Joel, if you listen to it this way first, we talked about watches together. I think you'll be the first person I watched it with. I had a tiny, I had a tiny peek, I had a tiny peek after I listened to the songs and see, I feel, I hate, I'm not getting to experience all this with Nicole for the first time because we, uh, we've never experienced a U2 release together. It's been over five years since they put out new music, but it is a bit, of an event in my life and make fun of me as much as you want. This is candor. This is vulnerability right here. So when all that you can't leave behind came out, which I believe was the year 2000, I actually had a cake made. That's the fact I had a cake made. And that was, we still went to brick and mortar media stores, music stores to get the albums at midnight, picked up the, album, <laughs> but I actually had a cake. And you know, the fact that it's been over five years, I'm so mindful of the fact, truth be told, not only as U2 is getting older, I guess none of us are getting any younger, are we? I'm always so mindful. You never know when you, anytime you do anything is going to be the last time. Not to be morbid about it. I'm always, that's just always in the back of my mind now. It's kind of like one of those apps that's just open all the time. And with that in view, it just feels like right now you kind of have a duty to me to talk about the things that you love, the things that bring you joy. I think so often about Barbara Brown Taylor's question of what's saving your life right now. And the truth is the songs revisited on this record have been saving my life for a very long time and have been a lifeline for me for a very long time. So yeah, a new U2 record is no small thing. It feels like it's worth talking about. Even as right now, I am by myself in Greencastle with my companions, Stella, who's at my feet, my good brother from Tennessee, George Dickel, <laughs> Bob and Bond, who's in my glass. That was kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm I'm working through the night, y'all. I'm working through the night uh, for the people. That sounds really funny. But I do, uh, I have thought a lot about this music. I had been writing before the album came out because I'd done just enough internet sleuthing to be able to piece the snippets together and get, you know, as much as I didn't want to ruin surprise. Also, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to resist any form of new YouTube music. And so I wrote a little thing. I put it on medium a couple hours ago. I hope you'll check it out. I may even read some of that to a point, but then I also want to go off script to maybe let this be the more fleshed out version of a thing. 
I titled the piece, not the most elegant title ever, maybe clumsy, U2's latest is not so much a demand as an invitation to surrender, but will you want to? And maybe I'll say right out of the gate, I feel like, uh, especially in the YouTube fan community, which is, uh, we are a diehard bunch. <laughs> I've been to 30 U2 shows, exactly 30, exactly 30. Um, the last one was in Perth, Australia with Jared and Kat McKenna and Sydney for two nights before that and Dublin before that. But um, in the fan community, this album has been a little bit controversial. One, as we now know, Larry Mullen Jr. sidelined with um, major surgery uh, back. A lot of drummers have issues. Been some controversy about the fact that U2 is playing dates in Las Vegas in the fall, theoretically, so long as the sphere, this uh, radical new venue in terms of technology, is open on time. U2 is slated to commemorate Octane Baby, which, by the way, I always contend is the best rock album of all time. I do, in fact, put it over the Joshua Tree, in case you're curious, and I don't know that you are. But it's uh, felt like a bit of a volatile time to be a U2 fan. This project, very Bono and Edge driven, Edge produced, the first time a member of the band, or um, and certainly the Edge has ever produced a U2 album. And the fact that for a studio recording, there is looking back, understandably, this creates a certain amount of anxiety. Is this the beginning of U2's legacy act era? Are they phoning it in now? All the more when they're doing a residency in Las Vegas. And sometimes we have the perception of Las Vegas being the place that great acts go to die. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about all that. But maybe I'll start with a bit of review and then insert some things real time. Is that all right? Is that okay with y'all? I hope that's okay with y'all. Rock and roll, friends, is generally about defiance. Defying rules, defying gravity, defying age. I'm thinking here about the Rolling Stones, right? Not that the Rolling Stones haven't had phases and movement to their career, but I still feel like the illusion that's created. And by the way, I saw the Stones live for the first time finally just fall of last year in Charlotte, and it was a special experience. But the thing you always say about the Stones is that, oh, well, here they are, <laughs> what, everybody's pushing 80, and Mick Jagger still looks same, moves the same-ish, at least, and the idea of immortality, of you don't really have to grow old, I do think that, but defiance in general, breaking rules, so much about what rock and roll is about. You two in particular is climb the mountain, overcome the obstacle, transcend the moment, stadium music. That's largely the effect that the band has is it makes you, it pushes you over, makes you feel like you can go over the top, go over the mountain. Bono lives with his fist up as he narrates the arc of his life in his memoir, Surrender, which I highly recommend, by the way. Since I'm riffing a lot here, I will say this about Surrender. You, I've, Most... Every review I've seen of that book has been so positive. I think it's a hard book not to like, even if you don't like Bono. About the only criticism I've seen from some within the YouTube fan community, once again, a um, we're a rabid bunch, but maybe wanted something a little saucier, a little juicier, more uh, a little more gossip. I don't know. I actually... On the contrary, I found the book to be especially revealing, but you have to understand where I come from. 
about these things. I feel like it's far more intimate, far more revealing, far more naked to reveal your soul than to reveal the details of your stories. I know that was a feeling I had when I wrote my book, How to Survive a Shipwreck. I, I, I felt like it couldn't have been more vulnerable, couldn't have been more open, couldn't have been more raw, but it's not about the particulars. It's exposing the soul is always the thing that I find to be the most the most vulnerable. And, and I feel like that's where it so succeeds is I feel like in terms of an emotional vulnerability, especially all the, for those of who are interested in such things, which obviously I've always been who care about the faith angle of you two. Ooh. I mean, it's really, it goes there. It's open. The tensions that are very soulish. So anyway, uh, that was a big little rabbit trail, but not really because the surrender book is so intimately connected to the album. But yeah, Bono lives with his fist up as he narrates the arc of his life in his memoir, Surrender. But on the Joshua Tree 2017 tour, I'm specifically thinking about, I saw the Joshua Tree 2017 tour five times, which seems a little embarrassing. But I'm thinking specifically about being in Cleveland, Ohio, a few minutes after meeting Bono backstage, which I'll talk more about in the piece. Uh, not to go on about it, you know, lots of people have more uh, cool run-ins than that. It's just that obviously the band's influence in the arc of my own life. That's a significant moment. So they're playing bad 20 minutes after I met Bono <laughs> backstage. And that makes it feel very different when he literally is praying an invocation for the crowd to let go and to surrender. Everybody lifts their hands up. And there, he even specifically admonishes the crowd to lift him up, lift the edge up, lift Larry Mullen up, lift Adam Clayton up. It's actually leading the crowd into kind of invocation. But Bad, which has always been a song about addiction, I think still is, ultimately comes an anthem to, to letting go. I thought then, too, about the live performance of Bullet the Blue Sky, which you can catch uh, from the Songs of Innocence tour, uh, commemorated in the special they did for HBO. That's still out there. But of the many versions of Bullet the Blue Sky over the years, this is definitely my favorite because I love how Bono is always reinventing the the poetry, the rant. And every version is harrowing and hits you in the gut in some way. On Elevation, it's about gun control. But in Paris, the one that I did find the most intimate, the most expressive, the most revealing, certainly the most self-revelatory, the dialogue Bono has between his current self and his younger self. And the idea is that he's meeting young Bono at 19 who thinks current Bono is uh, <laughs> is a little too posh and well-adjusted and privileged. And there is this fantastic dialogue, uh, kind of an inner dialogue that Bono projects in this section that ends with Bono saying, "What I, I'm putting more here than I did in the piece, what I've got, which is not a lot, but to not get caught with my pants down and my hands up, with my hands up. The new album, Songs of Surrender, finds our singer perhaps less worried about being caught with his hands up. The hands are in fact up, but the fist, not so much. It's rare for, for an artist from this space to really take you into the second half with them. A lot of people use that second half language. For those of us who are on a faith trajectory, on a Christian journey, you might know Richard Rohr, I think, uses this language especially effectively. And I know has also been 
monumental to the band. But it's rare for an artist from this space, ooh, as I sneeze, to really take you with, with them on this second half kind of journey. They're more inclined to try to keep the illusion of never growing old, uh, not letting you watch them become elders, which by the way, I feel like is true in general, not just in, <clears throat> there comes that sneeze, which will not be edited out. It's rare in life in general that people really allow us or invite us on a journey where we get to see them become elders. The self-mythologizing of you too, via Anton Corbin's photography has always been larger than life. The earnest iconography, which also happens to capture the band's sound. Songs of Surrender is not an attempt to be larger than life, just to let the songs live as they do now inside the interior lives of the band. Can the songs themselves be enough? So I go on to talk a bit about you know the whole bit in the open that in this season in particular with Larry Mullen Jr., famously really the founder of the band. He was the one who puts the notice out on a bulletin board at Mount Temple School at 14 years old, uh, asking for people to join the band. So Larry not being part of Las Vegas, and then you've got an album of stripped down songs. Understandably, cues for fans like me, fans like us, a bit of... Uh, uh, projecting catastrophe here. The earliest concerns being that this is gonna be the official cash grab, the legacy act phase, where you two is essentially conceding that they don't have anything new to say. And I will say this, as someone who's such a fan, I try not to be uncritical. And I will tell you that over the years, and I don't know if this is the band, I don't know if it's people close to the band, but I always find there their choices in terms of what singles, what songs to lead with to be a bit baffling. The most famous or infamous example for me is No Line of the Horizon, which actually is an album I still swear by. I do think it's a really, really good record. But it's so puzzling that the single they put out for that is Get On Your Boots. That is not the single, nor is it in the best eight songs on the album, <laughs> but they put it out first. And I really felt like part of where Songs of Surrender was set up a bit to uh, to be called into question before it's all the way into being is that the singles they released you have to know this about U2 the U2 thing part of the shtick if you will is that U2 puts they record songs in the studio that are really good but when they go live that's when the songs become definitive so whether that's bad would be the quintessential example. Streets have no name. There's so many others though, that the studio versions are good. The live versions are definitive. That's what takes the songs um, and makes them into something else. But there are a handful of tracks and only a handful really that I feel like you two completely nailed in the studio. I mean, perfect pop songs, perfect rock songs, when I said that way. And among those are Pride the Name of Love, With or Without You, One and Beautiful Day, which happened to be the first four songs they released. Now, I understand because this is such a conceptual album. And the idea from the beginning is not that these would somehow pair off, that we would, you know, 
exactly be ranking them against the originals, but inevitably you are going to compare. And when you take arguably the four U2 tracks most perfected in the studio in a way that's unusual for them, and then you put out reimagined versions, well, uh, of, of course, that's setting the expectations in a very particular way. And I think then the inevitable accusation becomes, in terms of the cash grab thing, is this just, is this bullshit for the band? Which had me thinking about on the Pop Mart tour, which you know anything about Pop Mart, it is you two at the height of glitz and kitsch and it's, uh, it's over the top on purpose and a lot of that send up, but it's, it couldn't get bigger. And with the backdrop of the giant lemon that spins and becomes a mirror ball and all of that, Bono said regularly on that tour, we figure if it's not bullshit for us, it won't be bullshit for you. And while Songs of Surrender is about as far away from the grandiosity of pop as you could possibly get, I do think once again, all is not as it appears from the artifice. And the album decidedly, whatever you think about it, I don't think it's bullshit for the band, no matter how it might appear, no matter how it might look. So time has not left you two as they were. And there's no attempt to cloak any of the earnestness under irony now. This has caused me to reflect a bit about being a product of the Pentecostal church, as some of y'all know. We're the ones who speak in tongues. And the familiarity of the songs for you too, I think seem to function less as a way of trying to recapture something in the past and more the way that tongues do for us. A way of transcending the intellect, going into the moment while accessing creativity from a place that's deeper down than words. As a result, some words are in fact change in the process. And there's a new narrative that comes from getting a little lower into body and closer to ground. This narrative breaks the script of a larger script of rock and roll, which with roaring exceptions has often been a market for adolescent boys. They are stories for boys, but songs of surrender feels less like songs to keep the boyish dreams alive and more like companions to take you by the hand into the second half journey, the inevitabilities and the complexities of aging. You can't choose against that journey, nor can you exactly give up. What else is there when you're up against time? The only available option is surrender, but it's still a journey that has to be chosen. I'll admit, by the way, that where this is kind of an album review, but it's bigger than that and might skew the album review is the Surrender book being such a poignant one. I am I am gripped by the themes and the convergence of the themes. And I'm aware that even with some of the lyrical moves that Bono makes on the new record, some of that could be controversial for songs that have kind of been canonized by the fans. And maybe I'm not the best one to gauge how successful some of these songs are sonically because, uh, well, as I'll say more about it, I'm a preacher. And I do think there's kind of preaching that emerges here that I find irresistible, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Instead of fighting the elements forever, this feels like a more personal way of waving the white flag than Bono's performance art on the 1983 war tour. You remember Bono famously waving the white flag but at that point, it's 
a bit more of a demand for uh, nation states that are at war to surrender. In effect, it's calling on someone else to surrender. What we have on this record is a far more intimate declaration. Boy no longer tries hard to be a man, I will follow. The boy is still alive, but when it comes to nature and mortality, the man has to, in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, put away childish things. Instead of saying, I will fight, the story comes full circle. I will follow. Now, at this point, I have to wonder, is there anything more ham-fisted than kind of raving about the new U2 album, which so much revisits the past, and quoting the Apostle Paul at the same time? While not a sanctimonious person, Bono has been, of course, often accused of being too preachy. Does this not make him sound a little bit too much like a preacher? Well, am I projecting here? Probably so, and I have reasons for that. So I already referenced that I've been to 30 U2 shows, but of course only managed to meet Bono just once. That was before that 2017 Cleveland, Ohio show. And cool be damned, I was very uncomposed to see the person who's been kind of whispering right into my ear for all of my adult life standing in front of me. And I tell about this in hopefully a funny way in The Road Away From God. But this part I didn't tell, this line I didn't tell. And it's a thing that's been hanging around, especially as these lyrics are preaching me through the night in more ways than one. But one of the lovely Bono-esque kinds of things that he said is he said, preachers and singers have a lot in common. We're both always looking for that top line melody in the room. Now, on the one hand, I don't think Bono aspires to be a preacher of any sort, more like the character in the Zeropa track uh, of the same name. He clearly sees himself more as a wanderer. Of course, he wrote that lyric for Johnny Cash. And I think the sound of that wanderer and that wondering, by the way, is really wonderfully captured in the reimagined version of I Still If I'm Looking For, which I may go back to here in a minute. But like all preachers, Bono can't help himself. Believe me, I would know. Pentecostal Christians traffic in miracles in language of spirit. Worst, we're too susceptible to suggestion since we do go looking for them. We go looking for the miracles. But at best, we know when the magic is there and when it isn't. I would be the first one to tell you to avoid the faith healer who performs the public. Anybody ever seen this? I'm not trying to make fun. But the miracle of leg lengthening, somebody's legs are um, allegedly not the same length and you bring the person on stage and I have to tell y'all, if, if you see that on a stage, I would probably have to tell you to beware because that sounds a little bit more like the runaway preacher from U2's Desire. Uh, that's a miracle, quotation marks, that's far too easy to fake. But in Bono's Surrender book, he tells a miracle story that for me is riskier than that because it risks public verifiability. The singer tells us that after he let go, and this got to be my favorite section of the book, after he let go of this residual bitterness that he had towards his now deceased father, he felt like he was given 
the gift of a new voice, that something actually changed in his voice from that act of letting go of that tension, that bitterness. And, you know, I think if you've listened to the band for a long time, you know, older Bono does not have the piercing, strained range of young Bono. He does not. There is a register that we hear from Bono when he's younger that he definitely does not have now. But I got to tell you, as a person who's listened to this band for a long time, and I'm not just talking about the studio recordings on the new record. I'm talking about hearing anything Bono's done the last couple of years. And, you know, of course, in the solo Broadway show, all those things. It absolutely feels, feels like there's something very different that's there. There's something warmer. There's something thicker. There's a deeper resonance. Something that's definitely unlike anything we had heard from Bono before, which begs the question, is it a miracle or just a special effect? Because even though The Edge, I know, would protest the idea that what he does with uh, delays and all the all the the things he's doing on those pedals and all the knobs that he's tweaking, um, which came out really funny, also will remain unedited. With even with all of that uh, kind of pedal magic that The Edge does. I mean, he is, of course, a sonic alchemist. He's a wizard. Uh, we get that in a whole different way on Songs of Surrender because, again, for the first time, he's actually producing. And it does feel like he, too, is operating with a different set of tricks. Even though, and I, I want to be honest about this while I'm saying so many great things about this record. For sure, I don't think every experiment on here works the very fact that there are 40 songs in the full version. I mean, that is a quite the sonic buffet. The truly great U2 records, Octane Baby, Joshua Tree. Uh, I'll put All We Can't Leave Behind on that list. We could talk about others, but they're so tight. They're so focused. We've got 40 tracks. It's not going to have nearly that level of tightness, that kind of focus. But in these experiments, part of what's so impressive to me, uh, take Where the Streets Have No Name, which talk about a wildly different treatment without an electric guitar on it, so far as I can tell, none of the mechanisms in that magic that give us the transcendence historically. And yet I still feel like the reimagined version is one that still gives me the shivers. Uh, it has new lyrics. Bono singing, I wanted to feel sunlight on my face. Now I need some shade and shelter from this waterless place. For each desert rose is a prayer for rain where the streets have no name. To go through the fire, if I go with you, there's no other way through. And that for me is the thematic through line for this album, is that Songs of Surrender doesn't offer the normal escape that rock music offers or at least proposes. It's the sound of not going around, but through. It's not nearly the kind of radical shift that we had, say, from U2 going from Joshua Tree to Octane Baby, which Bono famously described as the sound of four men chopping down the Joshua Tree. But there is a feeling of U2 not shouting, but whispering into the night, whispering into winter. And that does, for me, feel like new territory for the band. Yet, even if there's a sense of night, a sense of winter, there is a heat inside these tracks. 
I haven't lived with them nearly as long. So please take that with a grain of salt. Uh, the other versions, the other range of these songs have been, have been in my life for a long time. So it's hard to make comparisons. And again, I feel like comparisons are not the point, but I will say there are some tracks here that I think at least make early arguments to assert themselves as something more like what the originals always wanted to be. And when I think about that, I think about the immediacy and the intimacy to the new arrangements of Stuck in the Moment that I think maybe does land a little deeper for me, potentially. And that's been happening for a long time. It's why they've played acoustic for so long is I think there's a, something in the guts of that song that feels a little bit different. I love the more kind of Motown arrangement of it on All the Can't Leave Behind, but it does feel like there's a, another version of that song that's maybe been straining to get out for a while. Uh, stay, uh, which I love stay is more kind of mid-tempo rocker on Zeropa, but I do think again the intimacy that we get here, mm, it feels like that's maybe something of the song that's been lying underneath for a while, waiting to be unearthed. They've recorded more than one version of Stay. It's another song they've played acoustically before. So it's, you know, I think we can see the trajectory of that emerge, but I do feel there's something special captured on the album. Now, some of the more recent tracks uh cedarwood road ordinary love invisible the miracle of joey ramon which probably frankly never felt finished to begin with some of those tracks it feels less like alternate takes and maybe at least closer to final form insofar that it's the form that's most likely to stick with you that's what i'd say about that Maybe some of the best surprises for me is just how fresh though the early U2 stuff sounds here. I mean, that those are some of the songs I think are that really hit on something special because uh, it just feels like they tap into an entirely different source of electricity. Two Hearts Beat is one. Um, <laughs> I like this version exponentially better than, uh, than the original, honestly. 11 O'Clock TikTok, whole different song. Edge's haunting vocal on stories for boys. Those are those are special. So the early U2 stuff reimagined um, by these men in their 60s now. Yeah, really, really special. Now, I do feel like some of the original studio tracks, especially off of, say, Joshua Tree and Octing Baby, are so unimpeachable, it's hard to compare anything to them. And on that short list of tracks would of course be, I still found looking for hard to get more legendary than that in terms of a studio track. But I got to tell you, I love the, the new, I still have it found. You've got Brian Eno and Daniel Lenoir, who of course produced the Joshua tree coming back. But um, pun intended here, they're the passengers this time. You two's not the passengers. They are on this project and rather than being the architects for it. And it honestly made me think a little bit about, you know, the folklore of the film Unforgiven is that Clint Eastwood had that script for a long time. I don't even know if this is true, but I've heard it for a long time. So I'm, I'm, I'm reciting the mythology, at least. The idea is that Clint Eastwood had the script for Unforgiven for a long time, but felt like he needed to wait until he and Gene Hackman and Morgan Freeman were just old enough before he could make it into a film. And that's kind of my sense of this track is that the band now and Eno and Lenoir are just old enough for the song to become something else, even though the arrangement technically doesn't really stray all that far away from the original. The lyrics to Bad here, uh, which 
I think by any standard, is one of the truly great quintessential U2 tracks, uh, certainly one of the great live songs. But those are the lyrics that are most radically altered. Uh, they're transmuted from this much more intuitive, rhythmic, kind of a gut poem. That's what Bad's always been. I don't really feel like it's, I know it's a song about addiction, but I don't think it's about anything as much as the feeling that the sound of those words in sequence evokes and it's so interesting now to feel like it's kind of burrowed all the way through still a song about addiction but very much a redemption song on this project a song of surrender as bono sings that lyric it also feels like it's gone through not around into that meaning that's on the long side of death and resurrection if I could throw this lifeless lifeline to the wind, leave these jars of clay, you could break, not break away, into the light, but out of the flame, into a time of innocence again. Y'all can't blame me for getting preachy and how I talk about Bono's lyrics when the lyrics are getting that preachy. <laughs> May still be a song about addiction, but now it feels much more like invitation. And yet the other preacher, uh, Deep Cup fans will remember the Mirrorball Man short-lived on the Zoo TV tour, who actually is a faith healer, who is a kind of televangelist. That preacher still makes an appearance too, especially in a song like Desire. Desire is so interesting to me. I read a review somewhere that was so dismissive of it, but I got to tell you, I'm into it. The uh, I like the Edge's falsetto vocal on it. I like the fact that with the more hypnotic, darker groove beneath it, uh, as well as, again, Edge's falsetto, it just feels like there's a dirt and a desperation that we didn't quite know was there in the song before. And I love that. Speaking of dirt, I got to tell you, and there's not a close second here for me, if I'm honest, as much as I'm liking so much of the record. And again, uh, if you do 40 tracks, it's not tight thematically or uh, sonically, they're hits and misses to be sure. And I can imagine a U2 fan who would say all 40 of them are just great. Uh, I think for everybody, they'll hit a little different. But talking about the kind of dirt and desperation, bit of grime on Desire, nothing on this album for me achieves the heights of Dirty Day, Cut Off Zuropa, which is so brilliant to begin with. I mean, the original track is... Uh, is awesome and underrated. I saw you two play Dublin four nights in the same week in 2018. And the, I'll never forget, it was the third of those four shows that you two played Dirty Day and I just about lost my mind. They had not played it since the Zoo TV tour. And hearing that now, because I think that song is profound and also just so cool at any rate, it's the one, the record for me, that feels the most liberated, uh, the one that feels the most entirely reborn. And uh, as a mild critique, I will say the only negative to that is that it feels so good and so free. And I think in general, there maybe is a little more freedom to revisiting uh, so songs that are more second half of the album songs and B-sides, those that aren't quite as canonized. I think that's where the fun probably is and was going to be anyway but it's it's just so good it's so magical the worst thing i'd say is that you kind of wish for more of that i would love for there to be 15 tracks like dirty day 
that's more feels like there's really the freedom to take it somewhere else. But Dirty Day is a that is to me the feat on this record so far. So yeah, I don't think it all works equally well. Again, much more rambling through a sonic buffet than this very tight, focused, great album experience. Uh, so even if I'm not equally enthusiastic about all of it, I still have to say, even the more playful, the less essential takes. Because that's what happens when a band revisits any, well, anything from their catalog. Is, is, is it essential? You know, whether or not you find it all essential, I will tell you that few of them are boring. And I just think there's a surprising newness here that runs through the whole project. The biggest surprise for me is that in abandoning the sonic scaffolding that makes you too, you too, it feels riskier than I anticipated. But maybe also just risky enough to risk getting to a different kind of magic out of the songs. Not so much demanding, because you two songs, uh, albums rather are more like that, a little more demanding, a little more um, almost forcing a response, right? This feels much more like an invitation to surrender than a demand. You, you don't feel like you have to give into it. Does that make it inessential? Maybe it does. But there's a vulnerability running beneath this album that makes me want to that makes me want to give in to that invitation to surrender. So yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Some work better than others, but I think if you even saw it through a different frame, you know what, here's my, here's my, here's a hot take. I know that YouTube has been doing the thing for a while that you've got songs of innocence and songs of experience. And this is songs of surrender. I, there's a part of me wishes they would have called this record to just be U2 Night, because that's how I think about it. I feel like these are nighttime versions of these songs. And hey, we live half our lives at night, don't we? <laughs> and there's a lot of night in the world, a lot of dark in the world. And the fact that now the songs feel a bit more like warm companions in those spaces. Yeah. What can I say? I'm here for it. I'll tell you this, too, even though it's a bit of a tangent. You know, tonight, I think I've mentioned uh, on here at least once, I've been teaching a class this semester. First time I've taught a class at DePaul, but a class on Thursday nights on Shisaku Indo's amazing novel sounds. And I had my students over tonight to watch the film, Martin Scorsese's 2016 film adaptation. And hey, you know, I have no idea. Well, actually I do know for some of them because they're a few of them, the reflection papers have just been ridiculously good for all of them. I have no, I, I, you know, I don't know how deeply any of that's landing. Um, you know, you hope that something will catch fire there uh, the way that novel did for me 20 years ago or the way a YouTube record does. But I'll tell you this, just being able to be with students and encounter and engage together art on that level and be moved by it and to feel the things that I felt with them tonight, the things I felt, going deep into this 40 song album. Uh, yeah, you know, I guess that's also a lyric off of songs of experience uh, that now it's, you know, it's uh this is a bad time not to be alive, right? <laughs> like you kind of, <laughs> you want to be alive. You want to be awake. You want to be dialed in. And so, yeah, I am grateful to be around for, another U2 release. I know they were putting a uh, special edition vinyl out at Notre Dame and real tempted to get in the car and go get 
one of those. I don't think I will because I've got other stuff to do. And also, by the way, it is now 5.48 a.m. Good grief. So, yeah, I can't even, I can't act like I'm doing this for the people. <laughs> for however many or few of you are listening, it does feel like uh, part of how, you know, I think about Frederick Buechner's great line about preaching, that it's often a way of whistling in the dark to keep your own spirits up. And I think that almost as a discipline, almost as a practice. How's that for a Lenten practice? That's when Lent's largely about, I think, room for dissent and grief, but I also wonder if some of us might not need some Lenten practice and some practice in our lives in general of cultivating joy and carving out space for things that give us joy, being intentional about talking about them. How about that? How about in a not in a preachy way in the sense of uh, confronting people with ideology, but how about being a little bit more evangelistic about the stuff that's bringing you life right now uh, because it's good for your own soul? Yeah, I'm putting in a good word for that, a good word for preaching, a good word for whistling in the dark, which is literally what I'm doing right now because God knows the sun is not up. Please let me know what you think about this album. Let me know how things are going in your life. And if you want to connect more deeply to what we're doing on the Zeitcast, the Patreon community, uh, we're rolling out new things this month. Uh, great time, great way to do that. And I'm so thankful for any support you can give. Liking, commenting, sharing, reviewing, all the things means the world to me. But I'm just so glad we got to share this space. Glad to be able to share some songs with you. And uh, hey, aren't we all moving deeper into the surrender on some level? At least hopefully. Thanks so much, everybody. Good night. Good morning. Good day. Wherever you are, whatever time it is. Thanks for hanging around.